Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. It's the first podcast of the Jewish New Year, and we are getting the year off to an excellent start by welcoming Peter Baker. Peter is the chief White House correspondent for The New York Times and a political analyst for MSNBC. He's had a long and impressive career in journalism, which has spanned five presidencies from Bill Clinton through Joe Biden. He's also the author of seven books, most of them written in collaboration with his wife, Susan Glasser, who has also been a guest on our podcast. Peter is here to talk about their latest book, The Divider, Trump in the White House, which was released last week. Welcome, Peter, and Happy New Year. Shana Tova. Shana Tova. Thank you very much for having me. I think the title of your book is especially appropriate when you relate it to the relationship between American Jews and Israel, because I don't think anyone ever managed to divide the two countries where the majority of Jews live in the world more than Donald Trump did. (laughs) Well, we did call a book The Divider for a reason, right? Because Trump didn't just divide his own country. He divided America from other countries. He divided, as you're pointing out, the Jewish community across the world in some ways. He divided his own White House staff. He divided his political party. He divided even his own family. And you could say that's just, you know, an unfortunate consequence. But in fact, it was actually the strategy. That's the way he approaches life. He approached it in business, he approached it in entertainment, and he brought that to politics. Division wasn't just a consequence of, of a robust political career. It was actually the means of acquiring power by looking for fissures in certainly in American society and certainly, I think, in other you know, relationships around the world. He exploited them and found ways to use them to advance himself. In the simplest summation, many people would look at the Trump presidency and conclude it was very bad for American Jews in a lot of ways, encouraging the alt-right, the growth of anti-Semitism, general racism, and uh, you know problems with religious freedom, and very good for Israel. So would you agree with that statement, or do you think that's simplifying? It's a really interesting conundrum, right? Because, in fact, in so many ways, as you point out, he is troubling to many, certainly American Jews. His flirtation with the forces of anti-Semitism, even though he would deny that, was palpable and visceral to a lot of people. But he always pointed out that he was the father of Jewish grandchildren, that he cared very much about Jewish Americans, and particularly Israel was his calling card and foreign policy, saying that his support of Israel made him, therefore, in effect, rebutted any questions of anti-Semitism. Of course, it's not necessarily just support of Israel, it's support for a particular set of policies and politicians in Israel, right? It was his relationship with the Prime Minister Netanyahu and his support for him as much as anything else that was the definer of his uh, policy. But you're right, it sharply divided people in their views of him. You'd hear a lot of people say he's playing with the forces of anti-Semitism, the people who are in Charlottesville chanting, you shall not replace us and all that. And at the same time, clearly the most vocal, vigorous supporter of Israel, or at least Israel's government, that we've seen in the Oval Office. You said he cared. Usually American Jews or Israel supporters judge politicians' kishkas. Do they care about Israel? Was there any caring there? Was this really purely Trump transactional, Sheldon Adelson support, the support of the very pro-Israel evangelical community was responsible for the embassy move, recognizing the Golan Heights, the uh, ending of the Iran deal? Was this transactional as far as you could see, or was there any more to it? Well, I think it was opportunistic, right? Clearly, he comes into this issue, this area, without any great deep 
history or understanding of things. At first, he says he wants to be a, a neutral broker between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And then he realizes that politically, that's not the right thing he's supposed to say. And he backs off and makes clear he's going to be very strongly pro-Israel, as he puts it. So he has to be instructed on how this stuff works. He doesn't have a history there. But there is, I think, a recognition on his part that, as you rightly point out, the evangelical community in America is strongly defines itself as pro-Israel and that that is a base for him that he wants to win over. And he understands that even if he's not particularly religious and he's not evangelical or anything like that, that they are a key constituency if he wants to win the presidency, certainly the first time and then the second time as well. And so, yeah, I think it's an opportunistic thing rather than a longstanding issue for him. In your book, you say that because of Adelson, at Adelson's urging, Trump originally wanted to announce moving the embassy to Jerusalem in the first hours of his presidency on day one and that he had to be restrained from doing so. Who stopped him from doing it? Well, that's exactly right. Yeah, he has this instinct, like, just just do it, right? He doesn't have any appreciation coming into office that there may be complications or there might be consequences or if you're even if you're going to do something make sure you do it in a way that minimizes any negative fallout and takes advantage of whatever positives there might be that's just not in his nature so you're right the people around him you know bob corker who was the chairman of the senate foreign relations committee comes to see him at that very beginning day and is stunned to hear that this is something they're thinking about doing and it's the people who have some seasoning around him as a way to say hold off let's just give it some thought and people like rex tillerson his secretary of state First Secretary of State and, you know, H.R. McMaster, his first National Security Advisor, or second National Security Advisor, and others are the ones kind of cautioning him because there is this, you know, historical tradition at this point in the United States in terms of its policy not to jump the gun on uh, Jerusalem, even though it's official American policy, according to a law that Congress passed, if for no other reason, because it could be a good bargaining ship in whatever future negotiations may be held on the future of the conflict. But Trump doesn't see it that way. He sees it as a way of, A, of course, catering to Sheldon Adelson and the base. But B, I think also he's attracted the, the boldness of the idea, right? The idea that he could do something that other presidents didn't do was very appealing to him. And a bold stroke that didn't require all that much hard work. But was something he could do without Congress, without anybody else telling him what to do, was attractive to him. So you spend a considerable portion of your book talking about the Middle East diplomatic efforts, which are led by Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, who Israelis are pretty fascinated by because he's an Orthodox Jew. The president's daughter converted for him, Ivanka. As far as your reporting, did you see Jared Kushner coming into the White House intending to take this on to deal with Israel in the Middle East to solve the problem? Or was that something thrust on him by his father-in-law? Yeah, it wasn't something he necessarily expected to do. No, he didn't know that he was going to be assigned this until he was told by the New York Times. You know, (laughs) Donald Trump had just won the presidency. He came to visit the Times editorial board in New York, and he just sort of throws it out there. He says, yeah, Jared's going to do Middle East peace. And it's only when a Times reporter calls does Jared realize that that's something he's just been put in his lap. He obviously, unlike his father-in-law, does have at least you know, some background here. He knew Bibi Netanyahu from childhood because his father, Charlie Kushner, had recruited Netanyahu to come give speeches in the United States. At one point, Netanyahu even stays with the family, stays in jail, gets displaced for the night. So he at least has some understanding of at least one side of the conflict. He didn't know anything about the Palestinian side, but he obviously understood the Israeli side a little bit better. That didn't mean, though, that he expected to be the uber diplomat in charge of creating settlement that nobody else had ever been able to do for the conflict. But, uh, yeah, that's the way that this White House ran. You know, suddenly you're put in charge of something without any conversation in advance. 
The story from your book that grabbed the headlines in Israel was Trump on the phone offering Jordan's King Abdullah offering the West Bank to him in a conversation in January 2018 and Abdullah's rather dramatic response. Can you tell us how that played out? So Trump uh, is calling his Treasury Secretary, Steven Mnuchin, who's at the Davos conference. And Mnuchin at that moment is meeting with King Abdullah from Jordan and puts him on the phone. And Trump, being Trump, says, hey, King, basically, I've got a great deal for you. I'm going to give you the West Bank. Of course, Abdullah does not think this is a great deal. (laughs) This is not what uh, any Jordanian king wants, as you know, and as your listeners know. And he hangs on the phone and he tells an American friend, he says, I almost had a heart attack. I was doubled over. I couldn't even breathe. This idea was so shocking and disturbing him. Now, it probably wasn't Trump being all that serious. We don't know. But that's the whole point of it is that he says things like that without any care or understanding of why Abdullah might not think this is the best idea in the world and is willing to sort of throw a bombshell out there like that. It didn't go anywhere, but it really was revealing, I think, to Abdullah and anybody else who heard that story. So as you've said, Trump handed Israel a lot of prizes, a lot of gifts that uh, it didn't necessarily had to exchange anything for. And you wrote about his strategy towards the Palestinians this way, I'm quoting from your book. Trump and Kushner approached the Palestinians the same way he had handled New York condominium owners that he wanted to force out, turning off the heat, refusing to make repairs. If he made their life miserable, they would be ready to take any lowball deal that Trump offered, or so the theory went. Same with the Palestinians. So that clearly didn't work, and neither did a carrot. Kushner wanted to give the Palestinians, what, $50 million in international investments uh, in exchange for compromises. And so then they decide to go ahead with their deal of the century without the Palestinians on board, right? Yeah, it's not much of a deal of century if only one side likes it. Then that was, of course, the problem. They lost the Palestinians early on when they did the embassy move. Trump and Abbas never speak again after that embassy move. Now, is it performative on the part of the Palestinians to say, we're not going to deal with you because you did this? Maybe. But Trump didn't care. It didn't seem to matter to him that the Palestinians weren't at the table. They were going to tell him what they should want. And they saw it through economic terms. If we simply put enough money on the table, the Palestinians should take it and run. And they didn't sort of, I think, fully address the deep political, cultural and historical grievances and issues that were part of this conflict. And so not surprisingly, Abbas basically rejected it out of hand and it never went anywhere. Remember, President Trump is the one who told us this is going to be easier than anybody thought. And it proved, of course, to be the opposite. And it was a historic change in U.S. policy, right? They kind of abandoned any semblance of attempting to even appear to be an honest broker, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. The phrase honest broker gets you in trouble, I hear from a lot of people. But basically, you're right. I mean, Americans always had a pro-Israel, if you want to call it that, policy, but at the same time believe they had a role to play as at least a fair broker or some sort of an open-minded broker. And that was dispensed with under Trump. There was no effort to do that. Not only did they move the embassy without any kind of compensating concession, they cut the uh, Palestinian aid off, they closed the Palestinian office in Washington, they took actions to, in effect, turn off the electricity and the heat to see if they can make things so tough for the Palestinians that they would happily accept some sort of deal, and the the Palestinians didn't. The quote-unquote deal of the century leads to this dramatic confrontation when uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu decides to use this deal as opening the door for his election campaign push for annexation of parts of the West Bank. 
think. And publicly, we never saw a crack in the BB Trump romance. But apparently behind the scenes, it was pretty explosive. And we've heard a version of the story from Israeli journalists. But can you tell us what you learned about this moment of open conflict between Netanyahu and Trump and many of their advisors? It was very interesting. So, of course, Netanyahu comes to Washington for the announcement of Jared's plan. And he's there standing next to Trump. He's invited to speak. But then he gives a long talk, a long speech in which he is flattering to Trump, which is, of course, the key many allies found to him. But he just goes on so long and it's such a so palpably a campaign speech aimed at his domestic audience back home that Trump grows angry and uh, resentful. And he just he's annoyed. He just what, what is this guy doing, basically? And he scolds his staff afterwards, saying, basically, uh, how did that happen? What would allow that to happen? And then immediately, of course, Netanyahu takes the moment of Kushner's plan to say that they're going to go ahead and uh, proceed with annexation, proceed with the declaration of sovereignty, I think is the way he would put it. And that was not what Jared expected. You know, there's some argument that there was a miscommunication. The Netanyahu would say that he was very clear on what his plans were. Kushner would say that's not the case. And that, in fact, Netanyahu tried to take advantage of this, this moment for his own domestic needs. But either way, it created this great rift at the beginning of 2020. That was sort of the beginning of the end for the BB-Trump relationship, which is rather remarkable because it had been pretty darn close up until that point. But the rift really doesn't come out in public. You write in the book that at, at some point, Israeli ambassador to the U.S. Ron Dermer was uh, unceremoniously kicked out of Jared Kushner's office. Yeah. And they tell him, look, you know, we don't like you. And in fact, at one point, Avi Berkowitz is in Jerusalem meeting with Netanyahu, trying to negotiate something on the annexation to avoid a complete rupture and tells the prime minister that, that Trump isn't very happy with and doesn't like him right now. And there's a number of moments basically where there's sort of an FU kind of back and forth between Kushner and the diplomats. And I think that the souring really changed the nature of that relationship in that final year, which would ultimately, of course, you know, even despite the Abraham Accords, which we can talk about, leads to the ultimate break between them, which is after the election, because BB congratulates Joe Biden, which is to Trump, the ultimate betrayal. But in a weird backwards way, right, this problem, Netanyahu pursuing annexation and sovereignty unwittingly paved the way to the Abraham Accords. I mean, that's the story you tell in the book. It actually does. Yes. It's not what Trump had intended, certainly not what Netanyahu had intended. But because annexation is so disruptive, you have the Emiratis deciding we have to do something about this because they actually had a pretty constructive relationship behind the scenes with the Israelis. They're having to talk about some form of de-conflicting, eventually even normalization. And they, Yusuf Otaiba, the ambassador from the UAE to the United States, writes this, of course, very famous piece in the Israeli press, suggesting that if Netanyahu perceives the annexation, it will destroy the chances of normalizing relations with the Arab world. And it's at that moment that Kushner and the Emiratis come up with the idea, well, maybe we should, in fact, make that the trade-off. Maybe that's it. You know, we would hold off, if not basically end the idea of annexation in exchange for normalization. And there then proceeds this extraordinary series of conversations between the Israelis and the Emiratis, who never actually meet here in Washington, but are separately talking to Kushner and Avi Berkowitz, his deputy, to finally agree that that's the trade-off. We're going to put annexation on hold in exchange. The Emiratis will formally announce diplomatic relations. And it is a big breakthrough. It's not 
that Trump has anything to do with himself, but Kushner does. And I think that it's not so much the brilliance of an American intervention so much as this is the bringing into the daylight something that had been happening behind the scenes for years anyway, an evolution of relations between Israel and the Arab world where they found their interests more and more coinciding. This was the moment of taking advantage of that and bringing it into the open. But in the end, you know, in real time, all of the experts and pundits were ridiculing these inexperienced men taking on Middle East diplomacy and that they were in over their heads. But the Keystone cop sort of events and out of the box thinking, I mean, got the Abraham Accords done. And that will always be Trump's legacy for Israel. He opened the door to Arab countries normalizing relations with Israel without any kind of real settlement of the Palestinian problem. Yeah, and I think that's right. You know, look, it's not what he set out to do. He promised to do something different. He opportunistically took advantage of something that was sort of presented to him. But that is an important legacy, and it is something that was a breakthrough. Now, he would like to say it's the greatest peace deal ever. Of course, as always, he exaggerates everything. It's not. The Emiratis and and the Bahrainis and others who followed suit were never at war with Israel. You would know better. But I think it's a pretty important moment where Israel basically does gain the kind of acceptance that is long desired in the region as a legitimate ally and state, and at the same time cuts that Gordian knot between its relations with the Arab world and the Palestinian issue. So that, in fact, the two are no longer tied inexorably together. There had been, of course, for decades, this idea that you couldn't have one without the other. Now we see that, in fact, you can. Now, it hasn't gone yet to the ultimate extreme. There's still Arab states that don't have relations with Israel. And that's going to be the question in the coming years. Is Saudi Arabia, of course, the big fish finally follow suit with the others. We'll see. It does feel like they're moving in that direction slowly, but they still may require more to be done on the Palestinian issue if for no other reason to give themselves cover. But it's no longer the be-all and end-all of the relationship between Israel and the Arab world. And the Biden administration, even though it cares much more about the Palestinian problem than Trump did, has sort of had to embrace that legacy of the Abraham Accords. They hesitated for a while. You've been covering Biden, but they seem to have decided that they're going to, you know, continue to embrace it and build on it. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. They didn't want to give Trump any credit, of course. And so they were kind of hesitant, I think, to make a big deal out of it. But they've come to recognize that this is an important shift in the region and an important shift that needs to continue to develop and evolve, and they have a possible role in doing that. If they can get, for instance, Saudi Arabia jump into the Abraham Accords by the end of their presidency, that will be a pretty important legacy for them. So they think that they changed the way to see the opportunity there, even if they don't want to give Trump any credit. So your book has some other juicy tidbits. You write that Trump's schoolboy crush on Putin led to an exchange in a private meeting in which Trump was apparently trying to brag about his popularity in places like Israel. And what did Putin shoot back at him? Yeah, it's a rather remarkable moment. We, we all have watched Trump's affection for Putin and other strongmen, but this scene suggests that it may be something of a one-way street. This is at the Osaka summit, G20 summit in Japan, where Trump is meeting on the sidelines with Putin, and he's bragging, as you say. The Poles want to name a Ford after me. The Israelis want to name a settlement after me. And, and Putin, who ha- has Trump's number, very drolly says, well, maybe they should just name all of Israel after you, Donald. <laughs> and it's his way of jabbing at him. He understands Trump's narcissism, is that flattery is what matters to him. And it suggests that he's not exactly as enamored of Trump as of him. One disturbing revelation in your book is that in the final days, weeks, months of the Trump administration, the president was demanding to launch missile strikes against Iran or Iranian interests. Who was pushing him in that direction? 
as much as anybody, he was pushing himself. You know, there were some hardliners who had pushed for a long time when people around him had said, you have to be tough on Iran. People like uh, even Pence and, and Robert O'Brien, his last national security advisor, always urged him to take tougher action on Iran. But it alarmed people like General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and even Mike Pompeo, who is a tough hardliner when it comes to Iran, thought it was a mistake in the end to try to do anything in the final weeks of the administration. It's Pompeo, who's one of the key people who basically talks him out of it and says, look, you know, time's up. This is not time to be opening a new military kind of action here. We at Haaretz have run our share of comparisons of uh, Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu. You have covered both men intensively up close. Do you have your own personal compare and contrast on what these two leaders have in common and how they differ? Well, I always think it's kind of fraud. It's a fraud exercise, and I, I understand the temptation to do it. <laughs> there are some similarities, obviously. They both played to resentment in their societies and have managed to be more successful than anybody might have expected them to be. They both have this sort of desire to project uh, toughness as their modus operandi. There would be some people who say that their approach to ethics is uh, has some similarities. Obviously, Netanyahu's on trial and Trump may be on trial. Or there was a lawsuit just filed against him by the New York State Attorney General this week. Civil trial, not a criminal trial. There are some differences, though. I mean, I think that Netanyahu has, while an opportunistic politician, like many, but has an ideology that I don't know that Trump has. I think Trump comes at this at the presidency as more of a, you know, he didn't come with a mission per se. I think that he has some deep beliefs about allies shafting America, but broadly speaking, he didn't have an ideological worldview. And I do think that Netanyahu does have more of that than Trump does. But in the end, you know, Netanyahu thought he could manage Trump. He understood that flattery was important to him. He thought that he could, uh, you know, play to Trump and keep him on his side, even uh, as volatile as Trump was. And in the end, even he couldn't. Uh, it, all the flattery in the world basically didn't keep Trump in his corner when it came to the things that mattered most to Trump, which is, uh, you know, feeling like Netanyahu had been ungrateful and not loyal enough. So you think if uh, Netanyahu wins this election and pulls off a political comeback, it's going to inspire Trump for his decision to run in 2024? I mean, a little bit. I mean, there are lots of factors, obviously. But uh, but yeah, I think that if, if Netanyahu shows it can be done, that will be used by Trump or some of his people, at least, to, to say, yeah, we can do it here. And it would be rather remarkable if the two men were back in office again. It'd be interesting to see what the relationship would be like the second time around. You're probably more concerned with what it would mean for the United States if there was a next Trump presidency. Do you have any clue what you think it might mean for the Middle East? I don't for sure. I think obviously it would reverse the diplomacy that's going on with Iran right now, but that doesn't seem to be going very far anyway. Obviously, he would be much more supportive of the Israeli Arab belief in Iran's menace and danger to the region. But I think he would, I think Trump would take a different view toward Israel in a second term. I think it would be a little bit more jaundiced and a little less overtly all in. Peter Baker, co-author with Susan Glasser of the book, The Divider. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I miss Jerusalem. I would love to be back there. Come on down. <laughs> and that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my guest, Peter Baker, and to my producer, Avri Rosensvi. And editor, Maya Ben-Nissan. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. Until next time, shalom from Tel Aviv. <laughs>